I pray that this sermon tonight will speak to everyone in this room. In your name I pray, amen. Kids, you can be dismissed. Everyone else, you can be seated. <clears throat> I was thinking as we did that song, I don't know how many have seen the new movie Soul that's on um, Disney Channel, which is a very un-Disney, not Disney Channel, what do, you, what do you call it, the Disney, Disney Plus. Very un-Disney type Disney movie because it wasn't about achieving your greatest thing or whatever. It was just about like, you know, being in the, the zone kind of thing is in that movie. And I don't know if you've ever came into worship and, you know, sometimes you're not, you're not into it or whatever. And then there's other times you come in and you're singing and you're just into the zone. And, and Chip and I were talking earlier, we had a, the worship rehearsal and it was like the band was into the zone. We just got into that song and it was like, we were lost. We just kind of did it and went all over the place. It was really cool. And so I hope you got to experience that too tonight, maybe as we worship together. <clears throat> Sorry, my name is Brian Colbertson. I am the teaching pastor here at Refuge. I want to again welcome everybody that's here in person and here online. There was a Methodist preacher in the early 1800s. His name was Peter Cartwright. And Peter Cartwright was famous for being just this fiery, fire and brimstone, uncompromising preacher. And one day, President Andrew Jackson came to hear him preach. He was passing through, I think it was Illinois or Kentucky, kind of in that Abraham Lincoln area of the country. But Cartwright was told by the leaders of his church that, hey, we got President Andrew Jackson coming this week, so if you could just, just tone it down a little. We don't want to offend the president. And so as he got to the pulpit and he began to preach, he starts off and he says, I understand, friends, that President Andrew Jackson is here this morning. Let me say this. Andrew Jackson will go to hell if he does not repent of his sins. And the crowd gasped, just like some of you did there. Later after the sermon, I think I read that Andrew Jackson came up to him and said, man, if I had an army of soldiers like you, we could take over the world because he appreciated that fire. We are in the Gospel of Luke for the second year in a row, Luke 2.0, and we've called this series From Jesus to Christ. As we walk through Luke's Gospel and we watch Jesus transform to the Christ, to the Messiah, our Lord. And so far we've seen the Christmas story in Luke's Gospel, the warm and fuzzy story, and we were introduced to Anna, the forgotten prophet. Last week we got the one story in all of Scripture that actually talks about Jesus as a teenager and got a little bit of insight into him and his childhood. Childhood and what Luke was trying to teach us through that. That was at 12 years old. It's now 18 years later. And we're reintroduced, not yet to Jesus, but we're reintroduced to a very fiery prophet slash preacher named John the Baptist. And so far, if you've been reading along with us in Luke's gospel, John's story has paralleled Luke's story. We learn of John's uh, conception, just like we learn of Jesus's conception. We learn of John's birth, just like we learn of Jesus's birth. And that connection between John and Jesus continues right now to the point where they're both beginning their public ministries. See, it's been 30 years now in the story of Luke since the angels and the wise men and the shepherds were there at Christmas. But that's about to end. There's been 400 years now since Israel has heard God speak about the Christ, but that too is now about to end. 
And so before I get any further, let's just jump right into Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 3. I'm using the New Living Translation if you're reading along, and we're just going to go verse by verse, starting in verse 1, and Luke begins this way. He said, it was now the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, the Roman emperor. Pontius Pilate was governor over Judea. Herod Antipas was ruler over Galilee. His brother Philip was ruler over Ituria and Trachonitis. Lassenius was ruler over Abilene, Annas, and Sophias, or Caiaphas were the high priests. And you're supposed to, if you don't know how to pronounce a name in Scripture, just say it loud and proud and everybody will think you do. I don't want to lie and fool you. I don't know how you pronounce those any better than any of you guys do. But what Luke is doing, giving us all these details and all of these names, is he's pointing us to real people in a real time in history. But more than that, he's using these names to bring out emotion of his readers. It'd be like right now if I was starting a, a letter to you guys and, you know, it was 50 years down the road and I began, it was the fourth year of the reign of Donald Trump. President-elect Joe Biden was about to take office. Pelosi and McConnell were the respective party leaders in the House and Senate. Number one, that would place my story in a specific point in history and time, but it would also begin to draw out some emotions of this very tumultuous period of time that we are all going through. And so you would think back immediately to that point in history. And so Luke gives us five na- or gives us seven names total, five political, two religious, but they're all linked to oppression and misery of the people of Israel. Israel was under Roman rule. That's gone on now for about 100 years. The two religious leaders that are mentioned were enmeshed in politics and themselves corrupt. And so the people were longing for change. The people were longing for freedom. They were longing more than ever for a Messiah. They were longing to hear something from God because they hadn't heard in 400 years. And they were longing for another exodus from their oppression. And so Luke continues, at this time, at this precise moment in history, finally a message from God came to John, son of Zechariah, who we met in Luke chapter 1, who was living in the wilderness. John is the first prophet in Israel now in more than 400 years. But what exactly is a prophet? Well, a prophet is someone with the gift of prophecy. You're welcome. (laughs) Richard Blaylock does a better job describing it than that. He says, the gift of prophecy is a miraculous act of intelligible communication rooted in spontaneous divine revelation and empowered by the Holy Spirit, which results in words that can be attributed to any and all persons of the Godhead and which therefore must be received by those who hear or read them as absolutely binding and true. It's a much better definition. It must be received by those who hear them as absolutely binding and true. But the problem is, throughout history, there have been a lot of false prophets. You know, we've heard of David Koresh and Joseph Smith, and they've all claimed to receive direct revelation from God, and they shared it with their people. More recently, there's a guy named Harold Camp. He has claimed to receive revelation from God that the world was going to end. He's got that revelation and uh, prophesied 12 times now, so I'm not sure we should listen to him. 
But it seems like every asteroid that, that approaches the earth or every weird date, apparently there was a lot of prophecy in 6666, if any of you lived through that. Of course, the year 2000, there was a lot of prophecy, 2020, because it's a weird number. But every time one of these numbers comes along, someone claims to be a prophet and that they have revelation from God. And from the most part, most of these false prophets are pretty easy to spot if you're a believer. But if we aren't going to give a free pass to the Mormons, and if we're not going to give a free pass to the Branch Davidians to play the God told me card and use it, why do we give each other a free pass to use that same card? All right, let me explain. Every believer has the Holy Spirit, which means that every believer has the ability to hear the Spirit speak and guide their life. But I'll be honest, when I hear someone begin a sentence with God told me, and then something else after, unless it's followed by Scripture, I tend to cringe. I mean, we are allowed to have opinions, and we are allowed to have feelings, and we are allowed to even interpret the Bible to the best of our ability, but we are not allowed to put words into God's mouth. And so why is this such a thing today? And by the way, this is a relatively new phenomenon in the last 20 years or so where we say God told me or God told me too. Well, maybe it's because we're trying to sound spiritually mature without ever actually having to read what God said in his word. Or maybe it's imitating what we hear every Sunday morning from the pulpit as the, pro as the pastor says, well, God told me and, and begins to speak those words. Or maybe we've heard other Christians say that, and so we're new and we don't know any better, and we think, well, we don't want to be the only Christian that God's not talking to, and so we say, well, God told me and whatever. Or maybe if God said it, then the decision we made to go do whatever it is we want to go do, it can't be argued with. Because if you disagree with what God told me, then you're disagreeing with God. So let me give you an example. Let's say, let's say somebody says, God told me I should quit my job and be a missionary. Maybe. You know, we could say, well, maybe that's true. But because of how they phrased that statement, now we can't have an honest discussion about whether or not that's a good idea or whether or not that's something they should do because they've played the God card. That means it's the end of discussion. We can't argue with God. So is it a big deal in that case? I, I don't know. But let's, let's do another one. God told me, this is the person I'm supposed to marry. I mean, I'm sure you've heard that one before. But what, is, what if as that person's friend, you, you see that that person is abusive and toxic? But if we tell them otherwise, we're disagreeing with what God told them. God told me I should be in church leadership. I've heard that one before. They have no leadership ability no knowledge of Scripture. God told me I need a private jet for my ministry, and you need to help me pay for it. It's a real thing. Creflo Dollar in uh, Atlanta, that's, he got up on the pulpit, that's, and they bought him the airplane. God told me I should have ten wives. The prophet has said that in the past, and then he said, well, make that 30 and make that 50. Or the ever-famous, and this is the best one, God told me to tell you blank. Postmodernism says that there is no truth. That's the era that we live in that, that has stemmed a lot of the problems that we have in society today. And essentially what it is is what is truth for me is my truth, and what is truth for you is your truth. That's how the world works today. And so you can't argue with somebody's truth in postmodernism because truth has become Relative. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. 
But if we claim that God told us something, which means it can't be argued with, that's postmodern prophecy. Or to use a word that's even more popular in 2020, it's gaslighting. And one of the big problems with gaslighting in the name of Jesus is that it kills our ability to have actual conversations with each other. It kills our ability to speak wise counsel in each other's lives. We can't talk about our feelings and emotionings and reasons towards guiding us. And what that is then is a violation of the third commandment, to not use or misuse God's name and take it in vain. So constantly saying, God told me, not only violates this command, but it actually causes us not to be able to hear what God is telling us. See, I resist the God spoke to me or the God told me language, not because I don't think that God isn't speaking to us today, but in fact, just the opposite, because I know that God is speaking to us today more than ever. He's speaking to us unmistakably, authoritatively, personally, when we read, hear, study, and meditate upon the scriptures. There are a lot of voices in our heads. And most of those voices you cannot trust. Your own voice, the voice of your past, demonic voices. Could it be that sometimes we are trying to attach God to our PLCs? You know what a PLC is? Poor life choice. Or Presley Lynn Culbertson, which kind of goes hand in hand sometimes. (laughs) Could it be that we default to God told me, when we just don't know how to articulate, it's funny that I stumble on that word, our feelings in our reasoning. Or could it be that some are waiting to hear God speak and hoping that he doesn't speak and using that as an excuse for their inactivity and in moving forward in faith? I'll give you a real example, me. God told me to start a church. I may have even said that before, but it's not actually true. God gave me gifts and talents. God gave me a brain. God opened my eyes to see needs in this community and holes in this community. God spoke to me through his word and told me we are to seek and save the lost. We are to be witnesses to his gospel. And then I made a choice, whether it's right or wrong is yet to be determined, that we should help start a church. See, what happens when God told me to blank, and then later we change our minds? Then we have to apologize for God getting it wrong, and God doesn't ever get anything wrong. What happens when things go wrong down the road? I've met a lot of people who have used the God told me and whose lives or their marriages or their ministries have been wrecked because they acted upon a path that God had supposedly led them down, and they didn't seek counsel They didn't go to scripture. They just said, God told me, and they went full steam ahead. The world needs prophets in 2021, for sure, as much as ever. And we need prophets that speak what God told them. And we need prophets that will speak the truth. We need prophets unafraid to call out fake prophets and false prophecy. But most of all, we need prophets willing to get above the noise and boldly proclaim what all of God's word has said to us in the first place. And that's the good news of Jesus. I know that was a long sidebar I took on just that one verse, but I just think it's an important one and one 
not that God told me, but certainly one that's been on my heart for a long time, that we need to be unafraid to speak God's truth that comes from his actual word, and we need to stop putting words into God's mouth just because they fit our agenda. Verse 3 says, Then John the Baptist went from place to place on both sides of the Jordan River preaching, here's what he was preaching, that people should be baptized. And so John gets a word from God, and it's just a simple message, be baptized. Now in the Old Testament, we find some ritual clean cleansings to go to the temple, the Jewish people to go to the temple. They had to do a, a cleansing, but that had to be done every single time. It wasn't like our bapti- baptisms today where it's one and done. Also in the Old Testament, we, we see Gentiles who want to convert to Judaism, and they had to do a ritual that somewhat resembled our modern-day baptism. But the word baptism only occurs in the New Testament and New Testament only. It's the new thing that God told John the Baptist. But why should a Jew who is getting this message from John, they are God's chosen people, why did they need to be baptized? He says, to show that they had repented of their sins and turned to God to be forgiven. Israel is longing for liberation. Israel is longing for that freedom again. And John says, to be free this time, it's not an exodus from Egypt, it's an exodus from yourself. Baptism is an outward sign of a turn in direction. This would have been a shocking message and an upsetting message to most Jews. And yet somehow John was enormously popular. That's how much the people at that time were longing for truth and change. That's why we have to be willing to prophesy the good news today so that people can hear because they are longing for truth and change. Verse 4 says, Isaiah, which was a prophet, another prophet in the Old Testament, had spoken of John. He had prophesied of John when he said, and this is what Isaiah said, He is a voice shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord's coming, clear the road for him. When the president of the United States visits a city, what happens? The the roads are cleared, right? They get all the cars, all the people off the roads. The traffic is redirected. Stoplights are ignored. We no longer pay attention to them because we're trying to get a police escort to get the president safely through to wherever it is that he's going. He's a very important person. Jesus is much more, of course, than the president of the United States. He's the king of kings. And so how do we clear the road for the king of kings? Verse 5, this is Isaiah still speaking, the valleys will be filled, and the mountains and the hills made level, the curves will be straightened, and the rough places made smooth. Show of hands, I am curious with this, how many have ever played the game Oregon Trail? You remember? Yeah, some of you, you know that game started in the 70s, so it, this, it's a relatively young church here, but we played probably all different variations, going back for the MS-DOS versions to some of you maybe even had a few graphics on yours. Back in my day, there were no graphics. You pressed one, and then three, and then you went through it like that. And the game uh, was designed basically to teach how tough a life was for a traveling pioneer in the early 1800s, how they had to cross the mountains, and they had to go through valleys, and they had to purchase supplies, and they had to hunt for food. 
Of course, on this journey to the Oregon Trail, and it's from Missouri to Oregon, you could die along the way. I don't know if you remember, you could get a snake bite and it would show you're dead, or you could get typhoid, or, or the ever-popular dysentery. I mean, I, you have died of dysentery. That's always what I got. I still have nightmares today because when it happened, a little tombstone would pop up on the version we played, and it would simply say, here lies Chad who died of dysentery. It was it's troubling and traumatizing to a first grader, I'm going to tell you. It was tough to get from Missouri to Oregon. It's a tough road. In the Old Testament, the road to God was a tough road. You pretty much needed to be born a Jew. And even then, your path to God was limited. You needed a high priest. You needed a prophet to hear his words. You needed a lamb of God, to, a lamb to atone for sins. You needed uh, not only to follow the Ten Commandments, but you needed to keep the entire Levitical law. It was a tough road to God. And then you had to hope you didn't die of dysentery along the way. But along comes this voice in the wilderness, and he's going to change the road. He's going to change the game. He says the mountains are going to be flattened. The valleys are going to be filled in. You're not going to have to go down through those. The curves are going to be straightened. In fact, an entirely new highway is going to be built. But wait for it. You're not going to even have to make the journey to God because he's going to come on that highway from his throne in heaven down to us. In verse 6, he says, And then all people will see the salvation that God sent. So John is saying, look, Jesus is on his highway. He's coming to us right now. He's going to be here very soon. And when he arrives, everyone will see him. But this also means that he will see everyone. He will see our hearts, our deepest intentions and desires are going to be exposed. There's not going to be any mountains that we can hide behind. There's not going to be any valleys we can duck into. See, while John's message introduces this new hope that is coming into the world, it also reveals that he's going to be able to see who sits on the throne of our hearts. Verse 7 then says, when the crowds came to John for baptism, he said, you brood of snakes, or some translations I love, the brood of vipers. He says, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Some is lost in that translation. That is really strong language in the original language. I mean, he's essentially cussing. He's saying, you illegitimate sons of a snake. Basically, he's referencing uh, the serpent in the garden, calling us his illegitimate children. It's a reminder of just what a huge mess and how deeply flawed humanity is and how much evil we are capable of. And so there are those who are coming to John, and they're, they're asking to be baptized, and they're getting baptized, and then they're thinking, okay, I got dumped. Must mean I'm good. I'm in the club. Whew. And John says, now prove by the way you live that you have repented of your sins and turned to God. And all week as I read that, I couldn't help but think of James and his writing about faith without works being dead. Baptism is merely that outward expression, again, of the inward change that is happening to us. And how our lives, how we live our lives will reflect that change. But of course, you know, you say this to people, it says prove by the way you live. People are going to say, well, how do I prove it? 
How do I do it? I want some specifics. And so John's going to engage with them a little bit here. He says, well, first of all, don't say to each other, we're safe for we are descendants of Abraham. That means nothing. For I tell you, God can create children of Abraham from these very stones. Saying, don't say you've turned to God because of who your parents are or because of your religious traditions or how much time you spend going to the temple. That means nothing. He says this in verse 9, Even now the axe of God's judgment is poised, ready to sever the roots of the tree. Yes, every tree that does not produce good fruit will be chopped down and thrown into the fire. These are not the feel-good, warm and fuzzy stories from Luke chapter 1 and 2. And I'll tell you, Jesus uses um, nearly identical language later on, I think, in chapter 6 or 7. He's given a serious warning here. There is an event on the horizon that if you are not prepared, it will overtake you. We didn't get to have a summer movie season this year, but usually when the big summer blockbusters come out, they're pretty predictable, right? It's some big natural disaster, or it's an alien invasion, or it's an asteroid about to hit the earth, or, or you know, transformers coming and they're bad and whatever. And it's never that the, the people in the movie are like, I saw that coming. It's never... Man, we were so prepared for this invasion or what's about to happen. We over-prepared. It's always a surprise. And eventually Spider-Man or, you know, 50 Marvel characters show up and they, they save the day and the universe is saved. But John is warning the people of this coming event. And he says, you know that flood that we learned about? Yeah, it's going to be worse than that. This time it's going to be a fire. And those who have sin in their lives are going to be thrown into that fire. Those with no fruit in their lives will be thrown into the fire. It says baptism won't save you. Being a Jew won't save you. Being Andrew Jackson won't save you. See, if John is trying to be a modern-day celebrity pastor, he's going about it the wrong way. But John's a prophet. He's not concerned about fame. He's speaking truth. He's giving a warning that he received directly from God. And so the crowds ask, as I would too, what should we do? And John replied, I think he's just playing with them a little bit here. Well, if you have two shirts, give one to the poor. If you have food, share it with those who are hungry. John becomes a social justice warrior. And again, this reminds me so much of James uh, speaking. Verse 12, he says, even, uh, even corrupt tax collectors came to be baptized and asked, Teacher, what should we do? He replied, Collect no more taxes than the government requires. Duh. Verse 14, What should we do? asked some soldiers. John replied, Don't extort money or make false accusations and be content with your pay. Here's what John is getting at with these directives. Our lives are a reflection of what we value. Our behaviors are a reflection of what's going on in our hearts. But many of us like to live the double standard. There's a lot of COVID double standards going on these days. It's like, I can't do this 
because of COVID. I'm, I'm trying to be safe. I'm trying to avoid the virus. And then when we see pictures on Facebook, I'm at a bar or some crowded event. It's a double standard. And newsflash to everyone doing that, you're not fooling anyone because the rest of us can clearly see that double standard. We know the game that you're playing. You're picking and choosing your priorities. We have the same double standard with Jesus. I'm a follower of Christ. I'm, I'm ready for Jesus to come, Lord Jesus, come. And the same person, they lie, they cheat, they steal, they have no compassion, they have no grace. Those intentions are laid bare. It says the crooked road has been made straight, the valleys filled in, the mountains flattened. That means the intentions that are on our hearts are totally exposed to a perfect and holy God. He sees your double standard. Verse 15 says, everyone was expecting the Messiah to come soon. And they were eager to know whether John might be the Messiah. So I think here the people are like, let's change the subject. That's, that's enough of the fire and brimstone stuff. Are you the Messiah, John? Are, are you the one that has came to save us from all this? And it'd be easy, I think, for John to get a big head. People are coming to hear what he has to say. And people are all around him affirming the work that he was doing. But John simply deflects. He says, uh, he answers their questions by saying, I baptize you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. John's like, don't get distracted. Don't fill up on the wrong thing because there is someone coming that is so much more satisfying than me. Roos Chris is my family's favorite place to go out and eat on a special occasion. And we go maybe two or three times a year. And on the day that I'm going to Roos Chris, I will literally starve myself for two days before. I can't do two days. I will starve myself for one day before going to Roos Chris for dinner. Because I know the joy that that meal brings. And I don't want to fill up then before I go to that meal with a bunch of junk. I mean, how dumb would it be for me to know that I was going to Roos Chris for dinner and eat at Cracker Barrel for breakfast or have two Totino's pizzas for lunch in the microwave <laughs> or eat leftover candy from Christmas that tastes like the mints that are in and nothing else in, in the package? Well, that'd be dumb because by the time the meal came, I'd have no appetite for the good stuff. I'd be too full to enjoy what was so much better. We have this tendency to attempt to satisfy our hunger with things other than God. And we fill up on those things that seem good now, but ultimately don't satisfy, at least not like God can. And so then when God shows up in our lives, we miss him because we're too full to accept and eat the bread he offers John continues, he will baptize you, the one who is coming with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John's like, yep, that's what God told me. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds awesome. He says in verse 17, he is ready. Here he goes again, to separate the chaff from the wheat with his winnowing fork. Then he will clean up the threshing area, gathering the wheat into his barn, but burning the chaff with a never-ending fire. Sometimes you meet someone and you know, right from the start, you want to spend your whole life without them. 
if I was around in John's time, that would be the guy. Because he's right back at it. A winnowing fork is a wooden pitchfork. And you would take it and you would take the wheat and you would shake it in the air. And the chaff, which is the bad stuff, would be separated from the wheat and the grain, which is the good stuff. The wheat would be gathered and and eaten and prepared. And the chaff would be burned for fuel in the oven. And John adds, for good measure, the never-ending fire. Why is John like this? Why am I having such a difficult time working through all the uncomfortable verses in this sermon? Because if we are people of truth, then we have to acknowledge reality. And if we are people of love, we need to warn others of the imminent danger of that reality. We live here in southwest Florida and get plenty of hurricanes in the summer. If you have enough warning for a hurricane, you can prepare. You can put up your shutters. You can get sandbags if you're in a flood-prone area. If it's really bad and and you need to take shelter, you can go to to somewhere to shelter. You can evacuate the area. You get a warning, and then you prepare for the coming storm. But if the meteorologist only gave us a warning, but there was really no way for us to survive the storm, well, that would just be kind of cruel. Just let people enjoy whatever time they have and happiness they have. But we get hurricane warnings so that we can prepare and survive the storm that's to come. And so we're told at the end of this section now, verse 18 will be our final verse, that John used many such warnings as he announced the good news to the people. John gives the warning. It's pretty dire, but he doesn't leave it there. He gives the solution. John is the first person in history to preach the good news of Jesus. He certainly had his own way of doing it, but he preached good news. I wondered sometime this week what my sermon would sound like if I began to model my sermons after John the Baptist. So here we go. This is how I'm going to start preaching to you all. Listen up, all you snake bastards. God's wrath is imminent. Repent now before it's too late. Don't think you're safe just because you're here at church. Don't think you're safe because your parents are Christians. You better be baptized, but that's only the start. There better be some fruit in your lives. We better see some patience. We better see some joy. You better be out loving your neighbor. You better be standing up for the orphans and widows because I'm warning you, Jesus is coming and your double standards, you're not fooling anyone. They're going to be exposed. There's nowhere left to hide and it's not looking good for any of you. But I have good news. The wage of sin is eternal fire. But the free gift from God is eternal life. And that gift's name is Jesus. It's a new survey that was out this week. It's from the Cultural Research Center in Arizona Christian University. It finds that American adults today have increasingly adopted a salvation can be earned perspective. That's what's going through the church today. And I don't think it's anything new. It's been there for years and years. Maybe now people are just admitting it more. 48% of Christians believe this, that if a person is generally good, 
or does enough good things in their life, they can earn a place in heaven. This is crazy. Only 35% of adults disagree. John the Baptist's preaching can't and won't lead you down that path. And I hope that mine doesn't either. And I pray all the time that we're in that 35% that knows we can't be good enough. It's only because of Jesus. See, it'd be easy as we go through Luke's gospel in the next three or four months to use Jesus as our example. I could give a lot of good lessons about look what Jesus did, be more like Jesus, WWJD, all the ways we should be more like him. And yeah, certainly we can learn a lot from Jesus' humble and meek ways. We can see what a God-honoring life lived to perfection, what a grace-filled life looks like. But Jesus didn't come primarily to be our example. He came to be our substitute. He came so that his good works could be given to us. He came to take the fire for us. I'm going to ask the band to come up. We're going to do a time of communion and a time of praise and worship again. It's been another crazy week, and I feel like every week I come in here, and it's just something else that, that has gone on through the week. And, you know, I think we can all agree this time that what we saw, both the politicians and the people storming the Capitol, all of that was fairly deplorable. And as appalled as you were, I hope, by the sin that we saw on display, the sin that God can see in each of our hearts compared to his perfection and holiness is so much worse. We talked about prophets telling us stuff. Well, God told us in his word that the world is not getting any better, and it won't this side of Christ's return. God told us that there is an event on the horizon that if we are not prepared, it will overtake you. And God told us that for those who trust in him, there is no judgment, there is no condemnation, there is no fire for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so I want to come into a time of communion now. We're just going to eat a small, unfilling meal together. And let that meal help us long for the much more satisfying meal that will come after this life. God told us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we were to eat this meal together. And I think you ladies have the emblems to pass out. Are they already? Yes. Start passing those out. God told us that every time we gather in his name, we were to eat this meal together as often as we could. And so it says in Scripture, God told us that Jesus broke the bread saying, this is my body, which was given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And so as you get those emblems, eat that bread in remembrance of him. God told us in the same way, he took the cup saying, this is a new covenant between God and his people. Drink this in remembrance of me. And so as you get the juice, please drink that in remembrance of Christ Jesus very small meal that does not fill us up to help us long for a much greater meal to come. Won't you stand as you're partaking the emblems as we sing one final song.
Have a seat real quick. And, and Kaylee and kids, you guys mind coming up? Just want to pray for these guys before they take off. And, and Chip, I know, brother, when you left your last church, they gave you that guitar. Well, we got something for you tonight. Prayer. Good. <laughs> I'm going to miss these guys because, I mean, you guys have only been around since, like, late last year or, or, or early last year, late the year before, something like that. But I've gotten to know them so well in a short period of time because we have such common interests with music and gardening and all that stuff. Come on up, friends. We've been to each other's houses for dinner. And so we're going to miss you guys. But if you would, if you join me in prayer, we're just going to bow our heads. If you're joining me in prayer, if you just stick out your arms and, and pray with me so that they know that you're praying for them. Father God, uh, we just want to pray for this beautiful family, and we want to give you thanks for the short time that we got to spend with them, but, but just the beautiful time, and that they were willing to uh, come into a new church and serve, be a part of the body, and build relationships. The kids were able to connect and uh, just be a, a beautiful joy in watching them. And so God, we just thank you for every family that comes through these doors. And we thank you for this family who's been with us for the last year. So God, we just want to pray for them as they leave. We want to pray for safety. Um, as they travel to the new place in Tennessee, we want to pray that they have really warm clothes because it is so cold there in the wintertime that it's going to be so tough on them. Uh, we just ask you to get them through the cold weather. You can bring them back here if they don't like the cold weather too. God, we, we really just thank you, and, and your, your grace is so abundant, and it's so great to see people who um, put their trust in you that, that accept that grace, and so we appreciate Chip leading us in worship, and we do just pray safety as they travel, some sanity in this last week and a half as they're here in town, that uh, everything go well with their house and closing and packing and all of that, um, that um, their relationship as husband and wife, there won't be any fighting or turmoil with the stress that comes, that they'll just somehow uh, apply the grace that you give them to one another and, and just really treasure these moments and uh, have so much joy and peace about this new chapter of the story that you're going to continue to write in their lives. And so, God, we love you and we trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to miss you guys, for sure. Everyone else, say goodbye to them before you week. This time, this week, spend some time listening to God speak to you. Listen by reading and studying and meditating upon his word, because you will hear God speak truth. You will see God showing love. And then if the opportunity presents itself, be a prophet and share that truth with others. God bless. Love you all. See you next week.